Welcome to today's edition of AMSSM Sports Medcast. My name is Dr. Mimi Raleigh, and today I'm privileged to be joined by co-host Dr. Scott Young to share 10 of our favorite sports medicine articles from 2018. Thank you for joining us today, and please enjoy. Scott, take it away with number one. Oh, Mimi, thanks so much for that great introduction. Let's kick it off here. Number one is a 10-year follow-up after standardized treatment for Achilles tendinopathy by Finn Johansson and colleagues. It was published in the BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. This is a great study. is a 10-year follow-up, actually, from a study the authors did back in 2004-2005, where they looked at 93 patients with Achilles tendinopathy. They took those patients, they modified their activity level, you know, decreased running, decreased jumping, etc., they gave them concentric and eccentric exercises, some calf stretching, and then one to three ultrasound-guided lidocaine and corticosteroid injections. Now, those injections were specifically to facilitate rehab as needed. Of those 93 patients, 54 had one injection, 13 had two injections, and then two of the patients actually had three injections. So now back to the current study, this is a 10-year look at those 93 patients and seeing how they fared. They were able to get a hold of 77 of the participants, 19 by phone and 58 by actual in-person examination, which is pretty remarkable, I think. Um, 76% of those folks that they were able to get in touch with had returned to almost normal pre-injury levels, anywhere between 75 and 100% pre-injury level of activity, which is great. 16% had surgery and is not surprising uh, more of those people that had surgery had insertional tendinopathy rather than mid-substance. So they had three tendon ruptures total out of that group, one in each group. So one person that had a tendon rupture actually had zero injections as a part of the study, but they had six injections prior to entry into the study, which probably had something to do with it. And then one of the individuals that had one injection had a tendon rupture, and that was years after the study was complete. And then one person that had two injections also had an Achilles tendon rupture. And that was, uh, again, several years after the study was complete. So really thought not to be due to the injections they received during the study. And a couple of interesting points about this, uh, the result, this 10-year look at these folks. One of them is they did ultrasound measurements of the tendon thickness. And they found that even in the folks that had improved significantly or even resolved, at 10 years had essentially unchanged tendon thickness. And the authors also make a good point when it comes to the injection process is that you know corticosteroids might in, uh, reduce the warning signals associated with worsening tendon issues and could cause too rapid progression in some of those exercises, which could increase the risk of rupture. So you gotta be careful if you're thinking about using these corticosteroid injections in Achilles tendinopathy, you gotta be careful about the exercise progression. So. In summary, looking at this 10-year follow-up, Achilles tendinopathy treated with activity modification, exercises, and limited use of steroid injections to facilitate rehabilitation had a pretty good 10-year outcome with about 76% of the participants getting pretty close to pre-injury levels without risk of in, uh, or increased risk of tendon rupture. Thanks for a great summary, Scott. For the next one, I'm going to talk about uh, Benjamin Wheatley and colleagues' article in the Journal of American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery titled, The Effect of NSAIDs on Bone Healing Rates, a Meta-Analysis. 
This was an interesting meta-analysis that included 16 studies of adults and children with fractures, and it looked at the duration and dose of their NSAID exposure, patient age, sex, bone involved, and the length of follow-up. They did a subgroup analysis of four of the studies that only had pediatric patients as well. The results of the meta-analysis showed that NSAID exposure increased delayed union or non-union. However, it appeared to be related to age, as no effect was noted in the pediatric population. They did an additional subgroup analysis, and that showed that low NSAID dose or short duration of NSAID exposure did not appear to affect union rates. There were no differential effects from NSAIDs noted based on the type of bone, such as long bone, long bone versus spine, as previous studies have suggested. One of the biggest limitations that was noted in this study is that there was a bimodal age distribution of the study participants with a notable gap in the 18 to 35 year old age group. So I thought that this made it a little bit less generalizable to our young adult patients. All that being said, my personal takeaway from this one is to avoid NSAIDs for adult patients with fractures at an increased risk of non-union or delayed union, or even altogether if possible. Oh, that's great, Mimi. That's great stuff. Definitely something we can apply in the clinic tomorrow. Let's move on to number three, the comparative effectiveness of botulinum toxin versus non-surgical treatments for treating lateral epicondylitis, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Yu Chin Lin and colleagues. It was published in Clinical Rehabilitation. This systematic review and meta-analysis looked at six randomized controlled trials that were comparing botulinum toxin with either placebo or corticosteroid injections. Four of the studies were botulinum toxin versus saline. One of them was botulinum toxin versus corticosteroid. And one of them was two different methods of applying botulinum toxin, either intramuscular or intratendinous versus corticosteroids. So most of the placebo studies used 60 units of dysport, whereas the corticosteroid groups used 20 or 50 units of Botox, the trade name, which actually has a higher relative potency, which is going to come into play here in a second. We'll come back to that. Now, botulinum toxin in general fared better than placebo out to about 16 weeks. Not surprisingly, corticosteroids were more effective in the short term, about two to four weeks. But after that, there really wasn't much difference in botulinum toxin versus corticosteroids for lateral epicondylitis at eight to 12 weeks and even a little bit beyond that. Now, going back to what we were talking about with the dosing of the botulinum toxin, using botulinum toxin, not surprisingly, leads to decreased grip strength compared to placebo or steroids. The low dose, which was that 60 units of dysport, led to decreased grip strength for about four weeks versus eight to 12 weeks for the Botox injections. So putting all this together for lateral epicondylitis, steroids are probably the most effective in the short term, but as we know, they do have some potential issues down the line and are not always the best choice. Botulinum toxin is better than placebo and equal to steroids once you get past that short-term duration and can get out to about 16 weeks. you got to take the grip strength into account, however, because that may matter to your patients depending on what their activity is and their occupation, etc. And you may want to consider a lower relative dose to minimize the time that they lose their grip strength. Fascinating stuff and great study. Thanks for sharing that, Scott. 
All right, number four, moving on to exertional heat stroke, the return to play decision, and the role of heat tolerance testing, a clinician's dilemma by O'Connor and colleagues. We have clear guidance for successful treatment of exertional heat stroke, but that is not the case for safely returning an athlete or military service member to play or duty. This special communication to current sports medicine reports by Dr. Fran O'Connor and colleagues reviews current guidance on return to play decisions after a heat stroke, discusses current literature and evidence base for addressing heat tolerance, and examines the risk of further exertional heat stroke events. Specifically, it discusses the origin of the heat tolerance tests and how it's utilized by the Israeli Defense Force Medical Corps and how the heat tolerance test is a tool available for challenging clinical cases for return to play and or duty for exertional heat stroke. So even though there aren't any definitive high-level evidence-based guidelines regarding return to play or duty, the American College of Sports Medicine has published some recommendations which this article summarizes, and they include um, a five-step process. So number one, refrain from exercise for at least seven days after release from medical care. Two, follow up about one week post-incident for a physical exam, any pertinent lab or diagnostic imaging testing, looking for any biomarkers of the affected organs, and this will address the clinical course of the heat stroke incident. For number three, when the individual has been cleared for return to activity, he or she should begin exercise in a cool environment and gradually increase the duration, intensity, and heat exposure over two weeks to demonstrate heat tolerance and initiate acclimatization. Number four, if return to vigorous activity is not accomplished within four weeks, a heat, an exercise heat tolerance test should be considered. And lastly, if the athlete proves heat tolerant, he or she may be cleared for full competition between two and four weeks after the return to full training. This article asks what truly constitutes heat tolerance and when is a heat tolerance test required. It goes into detail of the actual two-hour heat tolerance test and how that is interpreted. And it explains a way that this test is used and gives the example of the Israeli Defense Force Medical Corps, which may prove useful to the clinician with a challenging case. It is definitely worth a read. Oh, Mimi, that's a great summary. Those patients are so difficult, and everybody wants to get those athletes back to play as soon as possible in the safest manner. So great stuff. Definitely worth checking that article out. Thanks. So number five, glucocorticoid injections for greater trochanteric pain syndrome, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial aptly termed the gluteal trial by Michael John Nissen and colleagues and published in Clinical Rheumatology. This study looked at lateral hip pain. Patients that presented with lateral hip pain for greater than a month had greater than 4 out of 10 pain, and is that typical greater trochanteric pain syndrome stuff. So, you know, it's going to be tender to um, around the greater trochanter, easily reproduced by palpation, sort of the classic symptoms. And what they did is they injected either saline or a mixture of lidocaine and betamethasone. And the outcome they were looking at is the pain intensity at four weeks. Now, with these patients, they were not allowed to have physiotherapy, hydrotherapy, or anything else until that four-week appointment. So this was pretty strict, just injections. They had a lot of trouble recruiting patients for this study. It looks like after about three years, they had to do an interim analysis due to recruitment issues. 
And at that time, they decided to cease the study due to futility. During that three-year process, they screened 80 patients and recruited 46 of them. A lot of them just didn't meet the inclusion or exclusion criteria, and a bunch of them just didn't want to be a part of that placebo arm. So 21 patients were treated with the lidocaine betamethasone injection, and then 25 of them had the saline injection. Interestingly, this population that they ended up recruiting was greater than 80% female, and the mean age was in the late 50s, 58. So the results showed no significant difference, but maybe a trend towards improvement in the intervention group. And they had pretty much an equal number of responders in each group, both the placebo and the steroid group. And interestingly, they had 12 patients that were considered cured at four weeks, cured being zero or one out of 10 pain, and most of those patients were in the placebo group. So what I get out of this is, you know, it's a fairly select population, mostly female in the late 50s, but corticosteroid in isolation is really unlikely to help at four weeks. And while this is a somewhat select population, I think these results probably represent the efficacy of this treatment. This is, of course, me editorializing, but I think injection alone for greater trochanteric pain syndrome or gluteal tendinopathy is probably not going to do a lot in four weeks. It's going to take a little bit more than that, maybe some rehab, et cetera, but just the injection is probably not the best answer. Thanks for sharing. We all want that quick fix for this problem for our patients, and you're right. I think that's a very interesting article, and I appreciate it. The views expressed are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the official party or position of the AMSSM or the United States Army. All right. Thanks, Scott. So I have Dr. John J. Letty and colleagues article called Exercise is Medicine for Concussion that was published in Current Sports Medicine Reports. So I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with the paradigm of both physical and cognitive rest until an athlete has complete symptom reduction resolution from sports-related concussion. This article by Letty et al. in Sports Medicine Reports reviews recent observational and experimental data showing that sub-threshold aerobic exercise normalizes the cerebrovascular physiological dysfunction that's sustained in concussion and is an effective treatment for patients with this sports-related concussion. Sub-threshold exercise may also restore function in patients with persistent post-concussive symptoms, which is often a challenge for us to treat. The authors recommend utilizing the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test, and if unable to walk or run, the Buffalo Concussion Bike Test, to not only evaluate exercise tolerance after concussion, but to actually write the prescription dosage for sub-threshold exercise to safely speed recovery. They explain these tests in detail in the article, and they present evidence that this sub-threshold exercise is an effective treatment even in the acute recovery phase, and it may help reduce the incidence of those persistent post-concussive symptoms. Importantly, the recommendations in this article are all non-pharmacologic ways to help safely speed recovery and prevent those persistent post-concussive symptoms. Not surprisingly, it also recommended other forms of exercise, such as cervical, vestibular, and vision therapies as appropriate in the exercise prescription for those uh, concussive symptoms. For me, this article added more evidence to exercise post-concussion and a useful how-to approach for treating a common diagnosis in the training room or sports med clinic. I highly suggest you check it out. Oh, that's great. 
no list of great sports medicine articles is complete without something on concussion, and that's a perfect one for sure. The athletes obviously want to get back to activity sooner rather than later, and this just, like you said, provides more evidence that we should get them back to activity sooner rather than later, but just in the right manner, and it's got some great guidance on how to do it. Awesome. All right, number seven, four weeks of roller massage training did not impact range of motion, pain pressure threshold, voluntary contractile properties, or jump performance by Daniel Hodgson and colleagues published in International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. This study looked at 23 recreational university-aged athletes, recreational meaning that they exercised more than three or three times or more per week. As far as the ages go, they were anywhere between 18 and 35. And the intervention was four weeks of roller massage to the quadriceps and hamstrings of the dominant leg. And they had three groups. One group actually had zero sessions per week. One group had three sessions per week. And one group had six sessions per week. And each session consisted of four sets of 30 seconds each, full length of the muscle, not crossing the joint, with enough pressure to elicit 7 out of 10 pain. So that's how they did that for each of those sessions, depending on the group that they were assigned to. The results show that there were no statistically significant physiologic changes, and the authors categorized physiologic changes as maximum voluntary isometric contraction or neuromuscular efficiency, which was measured by EMG on a lunge task. There was also no statistically significant phys- uh, changes on performance, and the performance measures they used were range of motion, single-leg counter-movement jumps, although interestingly, as an aside, some of the folks that had improved performance had improved performance on the non-rolled limbs, so that was the non-dominant limb. There was one group, the three sessions per week, had improvement in, on just that one side, and it wasn't the side they rolled out. So the authors thought that this is either just chance or perhaps just training because those single leg jumps were basically using one leg to jump up and hit a target as high as possible. But they didn't think that it was significant and that it didn't represent any true treatment effect. Now, this is a pretty small study. Each of the group had either seven or eight members. And we all know there's a large body of literature already out there on rolling and stretching. You know, my takeaway from this is that just this study adds more data to the already large body of stuff out there that says maybe it works, maybe it doesn't as far as range of motion and performance. Now, this specific study used a roller that was a hand roller. It has two handles on each end, and you're manually doing it as opposed to the roller that you would lay on top of and use body weight or some other force to provide the rolling. Mimi, what are your thoughts on, on these uh, rolling trials and just rolling in general? Well, you know, you're exactly right where you said um, it just adds to the large body of evidence that it may or may not help. I I tell patients it'll do one of two things. It will either help or it won't, and only only you can decide. So obviously this is not compelling for me to recommend it for patients. But certainly, I don't see any harm. I didn't, I didn't see any harm in, in doing this. So it is, it is a tool that someone can use potentially, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. No, I, told, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a perfect way to put it. All right, moving on to number eight. So I have an article from the British Journal of Sports Medicine by Stephanie May Ruchat and colleagues called Effectiveness of Exercise Interventions in the Prevention of Excessive Gestational Weight Gain 
and postpartum weight retention, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This article was conducted as a part of a series of reviews that formed the evidence base for the development of the 2019 Canadian Guideline for Physical Activity Throughout Pregnancy. And I love that they're putting this together because there certainly is a gap in some, some of our literature on this topic. So this article in particular looked at the effect of prenatal exercise on gestational weight gain and postpartum weight retention. It included 84 studies with over 21,000 participants from over 26 countries. They found that there was moderate quality evidence indicating a 32% decreased odds of excessive gestational weight gain with exercise-only interventions. To achieve at least a 25% reduction in the odds of excessive weight gain, pregnant women needed to exercise at least two times per week, 35 minutes a session, or accumulate at least 456 minutes per week of moderate-intensity exercise. What is that? Well, it's about 105 minutes of brisk walking, water aerobics, stationary bike, or resistance training in a week. Seems very doable. If they did a higher dose of exercise volume, that was associated with a greater reduction in the odds of excessive gestational weight gain. Okay, so what about losing that baby weight? Everyone wants to know that answer. Well, there was some low to moderate quality evidence that indicated that exercise-only interventions were associated with a one kilogram reduction in the total gestational weight gain and postpartum weight reduction. This is a pretty small difference though, only about 2.2 pounds and may or may not be clinically meaningful. They also did have some low quality evidence from about 15 RCTs regarding the association between prenatal exercise and postpartum weight reduction. The quality of evidence was initially described as being high, but it was downgraded to very low because of serious risk of bias, inconsistency, and indirectness of the intervention. That being said, and not surprisingly, they did have some data at 12 months postpartum that showed that women who gained less than or equal to what the Institute of Medicine gestational weight gain recommendations are, generally 25 to 35 pounds um, throughout the pregnancy, and who participated in a prenatal exercise program, plus a co-intervention such as nutritional counseling, were more likely to achieve their weight loss goals at 12 months postpartum than those who did not, which really makes a lot of sense to me. But did they find any downside to exercising while pregnant? Well, interestingly, this study also had some low quality evidence that there is a 25% increased risk of insufficient gestational weight gain when exercise frequency exceeds four times per week and exercise duration exceeds 40 minutes or exercise volume exceeds 550 mets per minute per week. However, this was based on a limited number of studies and had a lot of bias. While this finding will not change my current counseling to pregnant women who are already exercising, I do think that the moderate quality evidence of a 25% reduction of excessive gestational weight gain for 105 minutes a week of moderate physical activity is a very reasonable recommendation for pregnant women who need a place to start. What do you think, Scott? Oh, I absolutely agree. I, and Mimi, I love this article because I really love the specifics, the fact that it's giving you the exact numbers, the exact intensity, pretty much everything you need to know to give good evidence-based, at least based on the available evidence, advice to the, your pregnant patients and immediately postpartum that are coming into the clinic. And, you know, there was actually a British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast that came out recently talking about 
Exercise in Pregnancy. That's an excellent companion piece to, to this article. So I definitely recommend everybody checks that one out for sure. So uh, thanks for sharing that article. That was an awesome one. Thanks. Number nine is the accuracy of the lever sign to diagnose anterior cruciate ligament tear, a systematic review with meta-analysis by Michael Ryman and colleagues, which was published in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. Now, the lever sign was proposed in 2016 by Lely et al. as a new physical exam maneuver for the ACL tear. Man, we love those physical exam maneuvers, um, and this is, a, this is a great one. So it's really helpful, uh, especially for those mechanically disadvantaged. But basically, the concept is you place a clenched fist under the patient's calf, which basically where they have an extended leg, and that's going to create a fulcrum where you can apply a downward force on the distal femur. Obviously, it's probably better to see a video for this one, and you can certainly find those on the Internet. Now, if you have that fist under the calf and you're applying that downward force to the distal femur, in an intact knee where the ACL is still intact, the heel should lift up. If the ACL is ruptured, it disrupts that lever arm, and the heel will not rise or minimally rise because you're getting that tibial translation across the femur. So this meta-analysis is based off of a limited number of studies that have sort of heterogeneous methodological quality, and they used arthroscopy as the gold standard in these studies that the meta-analysis is looking at, um, excuse me, systematic review. With a pooled sensitivity, they found a sensitivity of about 55% and a specificity of 89% with some decent sized confidence intervals based off of the quality of the studies reviewed. Now, how does that compare to the other tests that are out there that we know and love, the Lachman, the pivot shift, et cetera? Well, the Lachman has a sensitivity of about 86%, specificity of 91%, and probably weighs in as the most sensitive. We all know, for everybody that's done a Lachman before, though, that's very user-dependent and can be a challenging exam, especially if you're not performing it right at the time of injury or in the operating room. Now, the pivot shift has a sensitivity um, somewhere between 18 and 48% and a specificity that's pretty high. So the pivot shift is actually probably the most specific, but again, potentially very challenging. How does the lever test fit into all this? It's pretty, you know, it's as good as the anterior drawer or some of the other tests that we've looked at and is a pretty reasonable screening exam based off of the most, or the available literature, I would say. And it's mechanically helpful depending on how big you are and how large the patient is and how difficult it might be to perform a traditional Lachman maneuver or pivot shift. So my takeaway is it's probably got some utility in certain situations and is worth taking a look at and seeing how it applies to your practice. Mimi, what do you think? Are you going to be using the liver sign in the near future? Well, Scott, I must confess I was using it on myself while you were describing it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Perfect. Um, you described it very well. I didn't need a video. Um, and while it appears that my ACL is intact right now, um, I agree with you. <laughs> um, it is another tool for the toolkit. Um, and I, I thank you for the great description of the article. Um, so yeah, just something else that we can potentially use um, as a phys physical exam maneuver. All right, to close it out for number 10, I'll present Victor A. Vandergraaff and colleagues' article from JAMA titled The Effect of Early Surgery Versus Physical Therapy on Knee Function Among Patients with Non-Obstructive Meniscal Tears, The Escape Randomized Clinical Trial. So why are, why are we bringing up another article about physical therapy versus meniscal tears uh, for surgery? 
Well, this article is important because, one, degenerative meniscal tears are common. Up to 60% of adults over age 60 have them. Many of them don't even have knee pain. And two, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy is among the most frequently performed procedure in orthopedic surgery. And three, there are at least six other RCTs which showed no difference between arthroscopic meniscal surgery compared with either PT or sham surgery in patients with confirmed meniscal tears, but we still do it. So this study, well, those, those other six studies were designed to look at superiority and were fairly small. So in total, the M for all six of those other RCTs um, was about 838. But with that being said, there's been no decline in arthroscopic meniscal surgeries, as I mentioned. So this new article is a non-inferiority, multi-centered RCT that looked at 45 to 70-year-old patients in the Netherlands from nine different centers, all of whom had non-obstructive meniscal tears and followed them out for 24 months. Of the 321 participants in the study, they were randomly assigned to either an arthroscopic partial meniscectomy, so there were N of 159 for that, or a predefined physical therapy protocol of which there were 162 participants. The PT protocol consisted of about 16 sessions of exercise therapy over eight weeks and was focused on coordination and closed kinetic chain strength exercises. The primary outcome they were looking at was a change in patient-reported knee function, and they measured this using the International Knee Documentation Committee Subjective Knee Form. This study um, had, as I mentioned, 321 patients. Their mean age was 58, and there was a perfect split of 50-50 um, for male and female participants. A pretty good amount of them actually completed the trial at 90%, and the authors utilized an intention-to-treat analysis. So, not surprisingly, the results of the study were in line with previous study results. Non-inferiority was demonstrated for the overall between-group differences in patient-reported knee function over a 24-month follow-up period. 47 of the participants, which is about 29% from the physical therapy group, ultimately did have meniscal surgery, which suggested that not all patients treated with PT were satisfied with their results. Eight patients who were randomized to the surgical group didn't have their surgery. And when you look at adverse events in both groups, the most frequently reported adverse event was repeat surgery. Um, they had three in the surgical group and one in the PT group who had a repeat surgery and additional outpatient visits for knee pain. So there were six in the surgical group and two in the PT group who had additional outpatient visits for knee pain. Ultimately, my takeaway from this article is to encourage patients to put in the work with physical therapy before seeking surgical consultation. What are your thoughts on that, Scott? Yeah, I agree. And honestly, part of what I take away from this, I think most of these patients, I tell them that surgery is probably not going to be that useful, but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a right answer all the time. And this might crack the door a little bit for me on the potential for surgery if they're failing that physical therapy. So it's always going to be mm -hmm. my... Not always, but mostly my first go-to, I would say. But I think if they're failing, rather than keep pushing them in that direction, uh, it's not necessarily inappropriate to have them get a surgical evaluation, depending on Absolutely. what's going on. Absolutely. Great. Well, that was a great article to close out with, Mimi. Thanks for putting all that together. It's been great talking to you about these awesome articles from 2018. I hope everybody listening really enjoyed this discussion. I know we enjoyed putting it together. Uh, I hope everyone out there has a wonderful and active 2019, and as always, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position 
of the AMM SSM.